Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world extracting their key advice, information, and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host, Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast. And today we are at episode two of the three-part mini-series in partnership with Eckist. And it's called Building in Health and Wellbeing, a how-to. And just as a refresh, the purpose of this mini-series is to give every property professional, no matter what stage you are in the property cycle, the information that you need to make strategic improvements to your buildings to ensure better development outcomes for both the end user and also the asset owner. And so that is very, very important. We're always looking for the the mutual win-wins. And we've partnered with the amazing team at Eckist for this mini-series as they consult on the design, creation and management of buildings to support human health and well-being. And they do that by using the well-building standard and the Eckist Design for Wellbeing framework. And today we have Olga Turner, who's the managing director and actually one of the first people in the UK to be well AP certified and was listed on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. We are specifically looking at the most important internal building ingredients to improve the well-being performance in any development. So, Wolga, a huge welcome to the show Thank for you. the second time. Great <laughs> to have for, you on. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. So let's jump straight into it, Olga. And as the technical expert at Eckist, would you be able to just explain a little bit about the relationship between a building environment and its influence on the health and well-being of its occupants. Buildings have a huge impact on our health and well-being. We know that they're one of the single biggest determinants to not only how healthy we are, but also to how happy and productive we are. So what we do at Ergist is to help clients create healthy buildings and even healthy master plans by analysing well-being at every scale. So whether that's at the master plan level or at the individual building level, very granular fit out or operational level we join up that entire process with their development team throughout the IBA stages all the way from zero all the way to eight and management which is great that you guys do from zero to, to eight um, because we, we're obviously part of this series we're going to pick apart all of these aspects but for this episode today we're specifically specifically going to look at the technical aspects of a building so from your perspective looking at, I suppose, the the technical ingredients of what goes into a building, uh, what would you typically assess? So it would really depend on what the client's needs were. We have a couple of ways of looking at it. So whether the client wants a very structured, formal approach and they want to take a certification-based approach, we'd work with a framework like the Well Building Standard, which would involve both operational and physical parameters, or we would use our own internal ECHIS Design for Wellbeing framework, where we'd again look at both physical and operational parameters, such as daylight, air quality, water quality, the kind of materials you're using, and what we call the biosphere, so how you're interacting with the wide environment. The kind of atmosphere you're creating inside, so based on a lot of psychological research and environmental research, how does somebody feel in this building? How does the design impact their psychology? And then finally, adaptability and longevity, which is something that we've been practicing ever since we started and has become a lot more topical with the current environment and everything going on with COVID, because we're all looking to see how buildings can be more resilient, more adaptable. So that's the bare bones of how we look at everything. And we really look at it as a science. So trying to look at how each one of those ingredients can be applied to a project based on the very latest, most tangible medical and scientific research. Can we... um maybe go through like an example of like something you've been looking at recently from a from a building perspective because it's obviously as you as you mentioned with with the climate that we're in at the minute this is a real hot topic around how these buildings impacting health and well-being um it it would be really good to maybe run through uh, and I, i know certainly from like 
uh, air quality, water quality, thermal yeah. lighting. You know, what sort of things are, are you seeing at the minute? Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it'd be good to hear that. Yeah, we work on a, a range of projects really across use classes. So whether it's residential, whether it's commercial or leisure, but taking maybe one example from each, we could look at a residential building we're working at at the moment. So if you take a scheme like the Bryanston, uh, which is a scheme done by Alma Cantor, they're aiming to be one of the first luxury developers in the UK to really apply well-being holistically to their developments. So as part of the advice and strategy there, we've been looking at how air quality can be absolutely optimised. And we've been working with the team at Air Rated to look at the design of the ventilation systems and then also using the well-building standard as a framework there to make sure that all those systems are functioning exactly as they should be to support optimal air quality. We've also done calculations on daylight and the proximity of each room to an open window and the size of the window in relation to that floor plate. And again, made sure that each apartment is as good as it can be in relation to that. We came involved at a slightly later stage. There wasn't anything we could change there. So most of our work was around looking at those ratios and saying, actually, yes, they're very good. And finally, the operational side was a big bit of work uh, that we've been doing with Alma Canter. And they've got an amazing management company who do a lot of the policies and something like for the well-building standard already. So they're already doing fantastic management for well-being. They've got a lot of mental health programs. Their staff are mental health first aid trained. So they really know how to run a building in a very resilient way that's going to carry on supporting uh, the health of those occupants. And then we could look at an example like an office building. So we work a lot with a company called Uncommon, who have had health and well-being as a core strand of their strategy for a very, very long time since, since they started and even before they met us, which is why it was such a good synergy. Um, and they're looking at it at a very material level. So we're looking at how the fit out and the specification, all the materials they're using inside can really create a fantastic not only atmosphere, but also fantastic indoor air quality and make everybody working in that space really productive, collaborative or relaxed, depending on what zone they're in. There's also been a huge focus on acoustics in that project and making sure that the quiet zones are as quiet and productive as they can be uh, and that there isn't a huge amount of uh, noise transfer and reverberation because we all know how important that is for our productivity. So real range of things really recently. Yeah, and it's, I think what, what I love about what you guys do is it's, it's really technical. You mentioned the science um, just before, before I asked you the question of just how um, you try and approach things with, with, um, with that level of robustness sat behind it. And, and that's a massive thing that's missing at the minute in the industry that Adam and I have seen. In, we only do delivery of, of property. We don't do design and, and we can't talk through the technicalities. And that's why we were so keen to to have you guys on this this mini series to really explain the nuts and the bolts of well-being in property i mean from from your side the key elements um you've outlined there would you say that's like the the core framework of well-being i appreciate that there's a whole picture behind it but you guys typically assess in the building those those key features of lighting air quality water acoustics and uh but I think that was that materials, was the, yeah, and then yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. It really depends on the client strategy. So for some clients, it will be a completed building where they can't necessarily do a huge side on the physical side. They might not be able to change the windows, for example, or do a lot of the big aspects of well-being that require big upfront spend. But they might be able to do the smaller things, which are also massively important to our health. So on one scheme working at the moment, we can't do anything about the windows, but we can do something about the lights. So we're looking at how the something called the CRI, the colour rendering index of that lighting can be optimised for health and well-being. So how accurately the light bulbs can reflect nature's natural colours. We're looking at reducing flicker and glare in those lights. So it's those kind of things that we can do even in a building that's already finished. Uh, or we can go full hog and really with someone like Lanseg, who they're happy for us to talk about them publicly, is do it at a strategic level. So that that's really looking at the wider piece and how they can apply well-being throughout their whole you know, process and how it integrates with their sustainability strategy. So it really depends on what a client needs. But I would say the bare bones are really light, air quality, water quality, materials, and then anything to do with operations. So whether that's your internal HR policies, whether it's the events you might run in the building, whether it's co-living, co-working, et cetera, uh, and just basic checks on your building. Because I think what people often forget is once you finish a building, you've still got to look after it to sustain the well-being. You can't just leave the filters unchanged. You can't not do your Legionella checks, etc. Um, you've got to carry on managing that building to really deliver well-being. It's not a done and dusted the minute you finish construction. Yeah, and that's funny because weirdly enough, Adam and I had a call earlier um, 
with a, a potential client and we were going through just how most it's probably quite generalistic of me to say this but consultants look at and people in property of let's finish the building and once it's finished i'm t- talking about the, the front end delivery and designers once it's finished our job is done and yeah. we move on to the next project without really thinking our job is creating something that's going to last last the life cycle and is it going to work and having that mindset shift around what you've just said there i appreciate that was very operational led around making sure it the standard that you've created in that building mm. continues but it's 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 really important that we always think of property as being uh, almost a, um, a living thing that we're going to keep using it for that for that period and Definitely. is the advice that we're creating going to work there and I think that's it's got a legacy every building's got a legacy right and throughout its life it'll impact our health so I know we look at the carbon cycle and you know the life cycle of that building and all the materials within it but actually we can look at the health and well-being cycle of a building how is it contributing to people's health and well-being from day one throughout its whole lifespan? And how can it be resilient? How can it change to do that? Um, and it's probably no surprise that about three quarters of our clients are the sorts of landowners, landlords, etc., who retain their properties. So they're not the ones that just sell and they're not involved in the site anymore. Um, uncommon are quite rare in that they own their buildings as well as, um, you know, they're not like WeWork who have leases. So it's quite interesting that a lot of people that we work with retain their buildings or own a whole estate. Yeah, sure, sure. Olga, I'm, I'm interested to dive into the, um, the five aspects that you mentioned, so lighting, air, water, materials and operations. And if we just start with, let's say, lighting, what, let, let's say you've got a brand new client who's, who's really interested in the sort of the health and well-being um, aspects of a new, let's say, a residential development. How would you actually begin at, I suppose, A, assessing the lighting? What sort of things would you look at? And then what sort of things would you typically be recommending? Mm. Well, first of all, we'd always work very closely with their technical team. So we always like to say that we don't just impose advice on clients based on what we think. We listen to what their design team are telling them and what's right for the building. So we would work, for example, with light very closely with their daylight consultant or their lighting consultants. Uh, And first of all, review how good the daylight is in the building. So a daylight first approach to lighting. How well does each room function before you need to switch the light on from a naturally lit perspective? So that may mean calculating something like spatial daylight autonomy, or it may be just looking at the room depths or proximity of whether it's an office, it's desks to windows, or if it's residential, is that window the right size of that unit? Are you getting maximum daylight? But also you're getting good views. There's amazing research to show that if we've got natural views, green views, or even maximizing views onto something like a courtyard or a nice balcony, there's lots of benefits to our nervous system and our cognitive performance and our overall just happiness in our environments. So it really can be as really as simple as that and saying, is this window actually giving you the most for this apartment or this particular room or space in an office? And then the next stage of that, so that's part of a massing study often or sort of an RABA stage two, three bit of design work. So once we understand how well that building is performing in terms of natural daylight, we would then move on to the electric daylight side, which is all the work around the quality of the electric lighting. I mean, the full hog bells and whistles approach would be circadian lighting, which is a type of lighting that mimics natural light outdoors. So in the morning, when you'd expect naturally to see lots of blue light outside, it would have a bluer light. And then in the natural environment where there's more red tones in the evening, that's what this light would replicate and it would get redder and redder towards the night. And what that does in terms of the physiology in our bodies is it signals for us to slow down. We release melatonin and that signals the patterns in the body that need to happen for us to sleep properly at night and not feel very wide awake, which is one of the negative impacts of having a lot of blue light at night. So it really goes down to that granular level as you go through that design process with the design team. And how popular has um, circadian lighting been from your experience? With Has that been something that a lot of people have been doing or is that quite new and still slowly being adopted? It's definitely still very new. And I think it's not always right for every project. We would always recommend a daylight first approach to lighting. We're, we're big fans of not over-engineering something when there's a simpler solution. So if the room can perform well with natural light, and if you can make the electric light simply dimmable or just have a very good uh, color rendering index and, of course, replicate natural light and it doesn't have flicker and all those other things we talk about, that's often good enough. And 
perhaps the most appropriate time to use circadian lighting might be in somewhere like a basement or somewhere where you're very close to another building or you're overlooked and you can't necessarily get the daylight or you can't necessarily put in the lighting you want. So it's still not hugely used. It is expensive and it isn't the right solution for every project. It's more of a solution for difficult sites or a lot of lower ground or basement space. But it can also be useful for shift workers. So I didn't know where you'd have a situation like that, but perhaps when you're doing key worker housing and although social housing budgets are often a lot lower and affordable housing, that's the kind of place you'd really need it so that somebody actually, when they come in at completely the wrong time of day, can trick their body into sleeping in the middle of the day by turning it into a red light. That's where it would be amazing. Think of its use in your know, hospitals and things like that. That's, a, yeah, a really, really interesting approach, which I haven't heard before. Um, and this really comes down to knowing knowing your customer, because if you're exactly that you mentioned key worker accommodation, if you know you're going to be providing key worker accommodation, that would be hugely beneficial for them yeah. um, in the long term for their health and well-being benefits. It, it's enormous. And I actually haven't come across that as, as an approach specific to accommodation types before. So I think that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Can I just come back on one point you said about flickering? Could you just expand on what you meant by assessing the flickering of lights? Yeah, this is something we'd work with a lighting consultant and basically specify a light bulb that reduces flicker. So um, essentially flicker causes headaches. So our, although you can't see it often with the naked eye, um, you can perceive it subconsciously and that's what can give you headaches. So it's basically the, the circuit of the light and the way the light is transmitted into that light bulb um, makes lots of little, little transmissions. And that's what your eye or brain subconsciously can pick up. And that's what can give you a headache. So low quality lighting often has a lot of flicker, which can be perceptible. You know, when you move your eyes left to right and, you know, track them, you can sometimes see that. You know, we can sometimes see a flicker. It's almost like a montage, or like a moving image. Sometimes you yeah. can that's what we're talking about with Flickr so we're not experts on you know the exact systems we install but we talk to lighting consultants about that and make sure that they specify all the right things for that that's really really interesting so we had um new lights installed at home and and one of our kitchen lights flickers constantly and annoys the life out of me and we've had the electrician come back like three or four times to fix it and he can't get it right so I'm gonna have to tell him you're giving me a headache (laughs) this is ridiculous (laughs) that's good ammunition for me (laughs) there's so much conflicting advice you know do you get leds do you get halogens and we don't profess to be experts in any of that but it really is important to have these conversations with your lighting designer who can advise you or at least have a well-being consultant who can do it for you because there's a plethora of information out there and even the advice within the industry changes a lot as new research comes out uh, as new products come out etc so it's quite hard to stay on top of so it's really important to question your lighting designer and say you know hey what are we putting in because often there isn't a huge cost uplift but there is a huge difference to our eye health which is you mentioned there Olga about cost uplift you whenever you've spoken with Adam and I we always talk about oh the cost of well-being doesn't need to be more you mm-hmm. can as long as you're starting to think of these things and, and massage the the budget towards these features have you have you seen a shift recently in terms of um, obviously this conversation with with the climate that we're in, but also more of a willingness to listen to this by the design team and in, include it? I, I mean, is it something you're seeing? And we'd agree with you in that it doesn't necessarily cost more. If you're doing a medium to high spec, good quality building, you're doing a lot of this anyway. And absolutely more often than not, we hear the architect or the design team say, this is all good design practice. This is all stuff we are doing anyway or should be doing anyway. So it's not like we're suggesting something that's completely bizarre or going to add a huge amount onto the budget. It's stuff that's good design practice, good mechanical ventilation practice. It's all written in guidance anyway in best practice format. It's just not legislation or compulsory. So it's not often done. Um, So, yeah, it really depends on the project, how much it costs. But I think the real question is how much value does it add? Uh, And there's some fascinating anecdotes we've got where investors have said, as part of this project getting investment, we want it to be well certified or we want it to be a healthy building. And that's important to us as investors. Uh, And then interestingly, if you look at sort of capital expenditure versus operational expenditure, we've got a really good example where somebody said in a meeting, the cost of upgrading the acoustics would have been lower than the amount of calls we take about noise as a nuisance. No way. Yeah, Yeah. single thing we get most phone calls about, and we should have just upgraded the acoustic insulation between apartments. So again, it's that trade-off, particularly if you're retaining that asset, 
of what's an upfront cost and how are you mitigating costs, not only for yourself, but for those residents, you know, nothing more frustrating than seeing a design feature or a shortcut taken that will cost that occupant so much to fix or to improve, but would have cost hardly anything to have done better at the early design stage. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that what's interesting is just by understanding how that, you know, that developers taken that knowledge, potentially if it for the next scheme, they would immediately go, right, this is what it's cost us operationally over three or four years. Yeah. And this is what we want to include. There's real, real easy, quick cost benefit analysis there to say Definitely. that's what we want to want to include. And that's a really good example of it doesn't cost any more. But there is all, and this is something I find as as a QS is knowing there's always a pressure on the on the capex of a job, and mm-hmm. the operational expenditure is, I mean, it, it's starting to become a lot more thought through and and considered. And you mentioned that client had a really good uh, management and operational team, but actually is really thinking about those budgets at the early stages to say, you know, what what are we going to forecast to be seeing, and drawing those those parallels between the design and the specification and operational issues later is is really crucial to, mm. to making those decisions so that's yeah. that's really interesting it's, really interesting. Approach, isn't it? it's adding up all of that cost and then adding up all of that value and one of the most interesting exercises we did recently was to actually look at each feature that we were targeting uh, and say what's the cost but what's the value and actually some features were really low cost but really high value versus something that might be the opposite, where it doesn't really add that much value, but costs a lot to do. So you can kind of start to look at it that way and say, actually, it's really worth doing this because the impact on health is massive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, Adam and I, when we did one of our, our first pilot schemes um, with a local authority on 100 of their properties, we we quickly established through through their operational issues, just from from discussions with their management team, just what the pressures were, and yeah. and and the impact of or neighbourly interactions was the highest impact on health and wellbeing, both negative and positive, in, depending on the relationship they had, and that was driven by noise, yeah. being able to hear their neighbour, and that was really really easy quick solution in any new new build scheme, yeah, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Interesting hearing Ballinmore recently speak at an event saying they're encouraging neighbours to bump into each other through the way that they're designing sort of foyers and entrances to apartments to build that sense of community, which I think is a really, really good point they made. Yeah, and, some, and someone we spoke to earlier, actually, he's he mentioned to us that the, the design of, of resi- large residential schemes at the minute doesn't really promote that you know long corridors and doors off it with very little natural daylight no greenery no place to 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 interact is is detrimental isn't it immediately from from day one i know an architect loves a front drive and a car on a drive rather than garages or basement parking because as he says that's the time you talk to your neighbor when they get in the car with the kids and you say oh hello nice to see little bill's got taller or you know <laughs> a little bit of a Really fun enough, we interact with our neighbours, and when I think about it, it's when I'm out in the front garden doing a bit of pottering, or you know, they're getting into their car, and you think actually that that is a way you bump into each other in a house. How would you replicate that in an apartment, or equally in offices? How do you encourage people to bump into each other from different companies? Yeah, yeah. I was just laughing, thinking in my head about you saying the um, the driveway interactions. My neighbour normally catches myself or my wife surfboarding my son into the house because he's at a a, a, a two-year-old meltdown in the car about coming indoors <laughs> yeah he's he's probably got a negative um negative interaction, interaction with, with neighbors y- your, yeah. your driveway interactions <laughs> yeah but but, elderly yeah. people on our street and there's there's a couple that in the summer every evening sit, sit outside their front door and sort of wave at everyone it's really quite sweet oh, they sit nice. home and wait that's really cute <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Olga, I'm interested to dive a bit deeper into each one of the other, the four aspects. So is it okay if we can just investigate a bit more about air? So I know we actually had um, air rated on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. You, you, I believe you're the chairwoman of Air Rated, is that correct? Yeah, so we worked together with Metricas to help found the standard last year. So we helped create the standard with them and their scientific team and kind of align it to global standards. So, yeah, we, we played a role in that. I think air quality is a hugely important issue and it, it really spanned from that. We were saying 
what is the single most important thing in a building pinned to people's health and well-being? If you could do one thing and do it well, you know, if you can't go the whole hog, you can't write a well-being strategy or you can't pursue a certification like well or fit well, what one thing could you do? And we were increasingly saying that's air quality. It's one of the single biggest impacts. It really impacts our lungs, our nervous system, everything even through to like how well we perform cognitively. It's very, very, very important. So we decided to form the standard as part of that. And that's how that came about. But there's many ways before you get to the standard, before you get to certification, that you can make sure air quality is good. So if you've got a mechanically ventilated building, you're looking at MVHR, you're looking at the mechanical system and how capable that is of filtering uh, anything within the air you don't want. So whether that's particulate matter or whether you're looking at a system that's kicking out carbon dioxide when we're all in a room and it's getting stuffy and we're breathing too much. Or if it's a home, it could even be when we're using cleaning things inside the home, we're burning candles, kids are making a mess and using paints, glues, all that kind of stuff. How do we make sure that the air quality in that home stays really, really good and supports its occupants? And particularly now that we have really airtight homes, if you think of something like Victorian townhouses, they're naturally quite blowy. And the amount of air changes you get per hour are significantly higher than what you would get with a modern new build. So that's advantageous in one sense because you're keeping the heat in. But it's really negative in other ways, because what's happening is you're building up all of those pollutants in the home and you're not really letting them out. And particularly as we approach into winter now, you're less likely to open your windows. So what are you doing to the air quality inside? So whether that's an office or whether it's a home, where possible, it really is best to have mechanical ventilation, particularly modern airtight buildings that can boot out all of those nasty things for you and make sure that they're not affecting your respiratory system. And there's a lot of research to say that this is why things like childhood asthmas are on the increase uh, and a lot of allergies and eczemas and things like that, because the air inside is becoming really contaminated or it's becoming really dry and it's giving people dry eyes and dry skin. So air quality is something we feel very, very strongly about. Uh, and aside from sort of filtering it, you can look at the materials and the ingredients of the building and how they affect air quality. So whether that's the flooring that you're using and the kind of sealant you're putting on that or whether it's the paint you put on your wall. Uh, it's amazing to see companies like Airlight who have created a paint that actually improves air quality. And I've recently seen a couple of others following their footsteps. And there's one called something like Graphene Stone I've seen recently. Um, so it's really interesting to see technology like that being now used to improve air quality. But also look at the furniture you're buying and look at things like toxic fire retardants and off-gassing of that. You don't wanna be buying cheap furniture coated in lots of chemicals because what that's doing is releasing really, really poor quality, it's releasing gases and creating really poor quality uh, of air in the home. And if you can't afford to buy something new that's certified to a standard, such as Green Guard Gold or Cradle to Cradle, which has basically been put through a lab test to show it's not releasing anything toxic into the air. If you can't afford that, go for a vintage piece or go for something older because it would have done all of its off-gassing already um, and it won't be releasing as much into the atmosphere in your home or your office. Out of curiosity on the last part about furniture, you said if you buy something old, it's already done its off-gassing. So is there, a, a, I suppose, a timeline that furniture releases gas and then it stops? Sort of what point does that happen? Mm, that's a brilliant question, actually, because each each single material component and each you know compound breaks down in a very different way. So you'll see some materials or compounds that are really quick to off gas. So right at the beginning of when you put it in, there's that nasty new smell. Uh, but within a week or two, it's gone. Other materials are much more gradual. So you notice it's kind of always there. It's a light, low smell, light, low sort of prevalence and it's off gassing very gently. And then other materials do the total opposite. They stay fairly strong and robust throughout their most of their life cycle. And as they get very old, they start to degrade into off gas. So it really depends on which specific, you know, paint, lacquer, finish, furniture, material, wool, cotton, you know, coating, any of those, they all have an entirely different off gassing profile. But as a really good rule of thumb, buying a second piece of secondhand piece of furniture that's a couple of years old, that would have a lot less off gassing than something brand new. Or if you can just buy something natural that's got a natural wool fabric, you know, wool stuffing or co rubberized coconut hair or something like that, that's not a toxic foam. What you really want to avoid is these composite modern foams you get in furniture, which can be quite nasty for air quality. I didn't know any of that. And, for, and very timely, actually, because my wife is just about to buy some new sofas. So I can uh, pass all this on to her to say, please don't off gas us. That is... Um, 
<laughs> very, I can't believe I didn't know that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it, it's a difficult one because some of the products are quite expensive that are certified and it's hard to find them. So I wish there was something more middle range or more mainstream, but companies are getting more transparent about things now. And it, I particularly enjoyed seeing a website recently that looked at the environmental sustainability of a product as well as the health and well-being. So it kind of looked at who made the product whether it was FSC certified, whether it was repairable and fixable so that it didn't go to landfill if it broke, and then whether it was sealed in anything toxic or it had some kind of natural sealant. So it was quite good to see that some you know, manufacturers are cottoning onto this. Um, and I particularly like Sebastian Cox's work because he actually puts, I know it's not well-being, but he puts the carbon footprint under each piece of furniture that he sells on his website. So it's quite interesting to see sort of carbon released or made per, per piece. So people are getting much more conscious of products is what I'm trying to say. And you can you can find out a lot more. And I think it's only going to go one way. Increasingly, I, I think we'll get to a point where every main high street furniture manufacturer will be disclosing their ingredients and will be certified to say they're non-toxic. But I think we've still got probably three to five years before that happens. Which is great. I'm That's just great thinking industry. Oh, sorry. You, you go, Jordan. I feel like you were, you were about to pounce then. No, I was just, I was, I was, li- I was literally in pounce mode. Oh. There goes the sausage dog. <laughs> Hello, Doris. I told you. I told you. So no, what I was what I was going to say is that we we had um, a really good podcast with with Richard Angel of Angel O'Donnell um, a number of uh, number of months ago, and he was talking to us about sourcing and and buying um, furniture and materials locally, and just how actually mm-hmm. that has huge um, sustainable um, credentials and 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 positivity, but also just explaining that to residents or tenants in the property that actually your this building has been supporting local businesses has a feel good factor to it, and that's almost like an un, I suppose in some respects unmeasurable way of, of of promoting positivity within the building. But that was also something really really interesting that he was telling us, and I thought you know Adam and I have certainly spoken about local um, suppliers right. and materials. Um, just not only from a sustainable perspective, but also just how that well that can be promoted within a development, which I think is quite cool. Responsibility angle, isn't it? We work with another fantastic client called Mason and Fifth, who have done the Italian building at Mill Street, and they actually used a, a furniture place called Goldfinger Factory, which kind of uses um, I think it's, like, it's either reformed prisoners or reformed um, people who had issues with their lives before, and they retrain them in furniture making. So not only is there a social aspect in the sense that they're retraining people previously not fully in formal employment but also the finishes they use are natural and they use a lot of natural materials and um, so it's a really fantastic similar approach where it's social responsibility and um, environmental responsibility but it's also good for, for our health yeah absolutely <clears throat> and there's that the, yeah that whole social impact piece around um, mm. economic enhancement of an area which is really crucial so now i, I it's definitely an interesting, probably a whole other topic to, to speak about than, than what's in the building. So, Olga, I'd like to try and uh, segue now into water, if that's okay. So what sort of things would you typically assess um, from a new build building perspective on water? Yeah, water quality is quite straightforward, actually. So UK water quality tends to be quite good anyway. But in an ideal world, you would remove some of the additives from the water. So as part of the purification and cleaning process, um, some things can contaminate the water. The chlorine levels can be relatively high still or the pipework might become contaminated in the building at any point, you know, lead or something like that. So it's a really good it's a really good approach and it's really good practice to fit in a carbon filter or something like a reverse osmosis filter on your mains water supply. Or even if you've got a, an existing building, just putting it externally just on the tap, a really good carbon filter. You can buy those in, in a lot of places just to make sure that you're filtering out any contaminants because there are so many points that these can come into a building, you know, even agricultural runoff and things like that. There's so many different ways water can be contaminated or the things that are added to it to purify it aren't necessarily always good for us. So it's really important. And often we get asked the question, doesn't that remove the good things in the water? Uh, and it doesn't. A lot of these systems make sure that all the good, good metals and things like that are still in there. You know, total dissolved solids, TDS, that's all still there. Um, I watched a fascinating program actually recently about the world's first water sommelier. <laughs> and he was talking about total dissolved solids and saying, you know, you don't want pure water. You want to leave the good stuff in. So that's what carbon filters and these sort of better systems do. They leave the good stuff in and take out stuff that could be toxic 
Would that show have been with, um, oh, I can't think of his name now. Zac Efron or something. Zac Efron, that's it. That's it. I wouldn't normally take advice from him, but I thought it was really (laughs) nice that um, they made... They made something so important, so mainstream. And we always talk about water quality a lot and, and people don't really understand it. So, yeah, I thought it was good that there was like a you know consumer facing program about even if it was one episode about water. <laughs> no, I agree. And that was actually really fascinating. I didn't realize um, water quality was graded on in terms of the minerals that are in it. It was, yeah. it was fascinating to watch them sample all the different mineral percentages and explain how yeah the taste felt and the the thickness of it felt is quite quite unbelievable um because water you think is just water but it's obviously not yeah definitely and I think that's what actually we also need more of so that people start to understand well-being from lots of different angles for people to touch on it from all these different viewpoints and make it really easy and accessible to like your everyday person and not just an architect or QS like you guys or a, a health and well-being consultant like us we need lots of people talking about it in a very simple way um, I'll never forget the time that like about about a year or two ago, Grand Design said an episode about a healthy home. And it was a family that had two kids who had loads of allergies, loads of headaches. And, you know, every month they're in hospital with asthma attacks, et cetera. And then they built a healthy home. And surprise, surprise, you know, the kids' asthma rates fell. They weren't in hospital as much. They were much, much happier, coughing a lot less. Uh, you know, their allergies have gone away. And everyone was like, now I get what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so the last no second last part of your your uh, framework is materials Um, I think we'll probably spend a bit more time on materials and operation if because we're going to chat with Jade in the next episode about operation so can I ask you to uh, yeah give us a really interesting overview as to what sort of aspects you're looking at from a material and specification perspective and how how your advice would um I suppose, improve the outcomes in any building? Sure. That's actually the bulk of our work. So when we're working with the architects, that's a huge part of our review process. So we will look at all the main materials they're specifying for a building and kind of check them against the World Health Health Organization substances at risk list and kind of look through that and see, is anything within this considered a problem? You know, it can be something in landscaping like, you know, GRP and it's got a styrene content and you think, oh, God, that's not any good. Or it could be reviewing something that they're going to clad uh, an interior with or a furn- furniture sort of coating or some kind of wool or fabric. So we spend a huge amount of time sitting down with architects and actually saying, what materials are you using? What's in your base build? What's in your main interior fit out? And how is that contributing to the health and well-being of that building's occupants? Uh, and I guess there are like a couple of ways you can look at materials. So the first one is you can take a really strict approach, right? You could say, I'm only going to use a material that's certified to a standard. So something like I mentioned earlier, cradle to cradle, green card gold, or and there's about 23 different European regulations that come into all of this that, that test the health and well-being in one way or another. You know, Blue Angel, Germany's got some amazing standards, etc. So you can be really draconian about it and say, right, I will only use materials that are certified. Or you can take a much more granular, bespoke approach and say, I'm going to get in touch with all my designers. I'm going to get in touch with all my suppliers and question them and say, what is in this product? And some of these people might have been using it for years. They might have been specifying on every project, but they actually don't know that much about it. So quite interesting to hold your suppliers accountable and almost say, what's in this product? I'm using it on every finish or I'm using it on every wall or the majority of the desks or tables or beds in my scheme are going to be made from this what's in it and what's in my paint and what's in my flooring uh, so we can kind of take that approach and they can send us a tech spec sheet and we can literally go through every single ingredient in that particular product and say this looks safe or this doesn't and that that involves a huge amount of work but it's also very worth it when you think that somebody could be breathing that as part of their air and it could be having an impact on their nervous system or their health so materials is really taking everything down to a really granular approach and saying what's the ingredient of everything I'm building with and as a developer or a designer am I taking responsibility for what I'm working with and in that material so a lot of what you mentioned there was assessing materials for um, I suppose VOCs and for air quality but do you look at any ways that you can use materials to enhance well-being outcomes I'm thinking things like biophilia and that sort of stuff 
Absolutely. One of the things I most enjoy talking about, and every client's heard me bang on about it for hours, is um, the use of wood. That's one of the most studied materials we have. It's one of the oldest materials humankind has worked with. And unsurprisingly, it's one of the best for our health. So we know when we're around wood that things like our heart rate slow down, cortisol, which is the stress hormone found in our saliva, that's lower when we're around wood. Our self-reported happiness and stress levels are much better when we're around timber. And people's just overall sense of liking a place is often quite pegged to the use of natural materials. So you can do lots of surveys and say, why did you feel comfortable in space? Or why did you feel alien in the space? And there's such a strong correlation across many, many studies showing that people are feeling more comfortable in places that have more wood, that have more stone, or that have more biophilic design elements. Uh, and that's, and we know that that's just really important to our to our overall health. But scientists are still trying to work out why we respond so positively. We've got more evidence actually showing that we respond positively than why. So we're still trying to, as a scientific community, underpin the real the real physiological functions behind that and why that's an evolutionary thing. But it, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence showing this. So we really like to work with natural materials where possible, and and specifically wood for its amazing health benefits and relaxation benefits. In terms of actually providing direct biophilia advice to a client, would you be picking that up just in terms of recommending them to incorporate wood wherever possible? So that might be, I don't know, exposing a structural timber frame um, so people can see it or through furniture or even worktops. Is that the sort of level that you're going to? Yeah, lots of different approaches. So it can be just finishes. So how do we get natural finishes, even natural colours? And a lot of the research is showing that we're quite easily fooled by things. So you, you can just have a natural pattern and still achieve the same effects. So a nature pattern or a nature themed colour or colour that reflects the environment outside can be just as helpful as the real thing. So it really does range between the kind of finishes and products you're using, but also imagery. So what kind of pictures are you putting up in the place? Uh, what kind of plants are you putting in? So there's many different levels you can consider that. And I think it's a biophilic design is a very holistic thing. It's not just I put in four four pot plants and, you know, here's my big timber wall. It can even be something like sound. <laughs> I'll never forget. I went to a conference in Estonia once um, and the architects were really keen on biophilic design and design for well-being. And they said, hey, Olga, come and see our toilet. <laughs> what on earth are they going to show me? <laughs> I walked into their uh, bathroom and it was fascinating. They were playing the sound of birds in it. And they were saying, this is this is meant to be a calming place. You know, it's not it's somewhere you can go to like sit down, wash your hands, powder your nose, do your makeup. It's not just a loo. It's meant to be a relaxing sort of part of your daily experience. And I thought, you know, you've really thought about it, haven't you? So, That's awesome. Did, did it feel relaxing? I mean, it did. It was really nice. It was not relaxing, you know, being in a small room with a client that's a toilet, but... <laughs> It was a really nice idea. Uh, and I thought, yeah, you are thinking about this. And they, they'd used it also in like a conference room as well. Uh, and one of the things we're talking to clients about is is real time noise and sound. So could you have the sound of a forest or a na national park nearby playing on speakers in your building and connecting you to that space? Could you project an image of that environment into like a relaxation room or something? Or can people save that as a worktop and it changes seasonally? Uh, you know, like live broadcasting from a nearby natural place. So you can kind of do a bit of meditation in your lunch break. Yeah, they're all fantastic approaches um, and, and really interesting concept how you're just assessing the building from a holistic perspective. And I, I think that's definitely something that's probably missed across the industry is people think it's just one single aspect. Yeah. Um, and they, they, I suppose they, they, either through a lack of understanding or just that there's not enough information to sort of grasp how does a building actually influence health and well-being. So it's really helpful to hear your holistic approach that every sort of interaction that someone has in a building, no matter how small or big, has a direct influence and how can we sort of adapt that interaction to make sure the outcome is positive. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And that was one of my strongest ambitions and reasons for setting up Ekist, is everyone else was doing well-being from a really niche or specific perspective. It was either touching upon it through office consultancy or touching upon it through M&E or something very specific like engineering. And nobody was really saying, 
hey, how does well-being fit into your corporate strategy? How can we help you from day one on a more holistic level? And then we'll apply it in a granular way with your engineers, with your architects, your lighting designers. But how, how is it a holistic thing first and foremost before we jump into that detail? Otherwise you can miss the big picture and just apply a tiny thing and it really not do much good because you haven't thought about the wider stuff. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And um, I'm mindful of time, Olga. So if you've got another sort of seven to ten minutes, uh, that would be fantastic. But if you don't, please let us know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm game. Oh, delightful. Okay. Um, so I know we've discussed this with Karen on the first episode, but from your technical perspective, what do you feel the most common technical oversights or sort of missed opportunities from design teams? I think it could be seeing well-being in isolation and kind of seeing it as an add-on. I think the most important thing you can do is, is see it as part of your overall strategy. So well-being is part of design, well-being is part of specification, well-being is part of your sustainability strategy, it's part of your operations strategy, it's part of your management, it's part of your HR policies and whoever's working in your company to deliver it. And I think that that's the biggest oversight. What you don't want your well-being advice right at the end or as a piecemeal thing and say, hey, just help on this side. Of course, you can do that, but you'll really get the biggest benefit is if, is if you look at it throughout the whole process and get that person talking to each person in your design team to make sure it's a holistic strand throughout your whole approach. I've written four pages of notes already. I love it. I just love listening to you talk because you're coming up with really interesting touch points that we could expand upon for days so uh, but just I am on, mindful of your time so no Jordan you go yeah, I'm going to no, pass you to the last that, question yeah I was just going to ask you on that Olga actually in terms of missed opportunities and, and oversights do you find at the minute that there is and this probably actually leads into my next question but I'll try to make it not but the do you find that you're getting inquiries at the minute for what can we do now because of what's happening and we need to we need to get ahead of the curve on existing assets or assets midway through is there suddenly been a change in like can we make this a bolt-on feature to what we're doing I mean just quickly we found obviously we don't do um, the, the technical aspects of, of well-being we understand delivery of well-being buildings but we're suddenly finding that that has changed in in consumer mindset or, or customer mindset client mindset in saying we need to understand it has that been something you've seen as this has almost been a missed opportunity before, but is now jumping ahead? Yeah, definitely. We've always had the developers and the clients that really care. So the ones that really care have always done it and they'll always do this because it's important to them. And it's important to their brand and it's an ethical alignment. And it's because they take responsibility for what they deliver. But I think it's perhaps nudged some of the people that used to care a bit less or perhaps weren't so informed. And now they're thinking, I'm going to get behind unless I do this. So I know it's a bit of a carrot or stick approach. And it's definitely felt more of a stick recently to some people who haven't thought about well-being holistically and are thinking, gosh, I really need to do something about it. I need to think about the air quality in my development because I know how COVID can be exacerbated by poor air quality or poor humidity. Uh, I know I can impact people's mental health negatively if I don't do the right things. So I think recent circumstances have nudged the less responsible developers or clients to come out of the woodwork, which I think is a good thing because no matter how you come to it, the fact that you came to it is the most important thing. Um, but yeah, it's definitely good to, good to see that there's always that group that's always cared and that the ones that used to be less conscious about well-being are also now caring a lot more. I think a similar thing happened with sustainability, to be honest. If you remember sustainability 10, sort of 20 years ago, it was just the very, very ethical companies, the sort of leaders that did it. And now everybody's got a CSR, ESG strategy, etc. And I think we'll only see the same for well-being. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it always seems to work like this quite well, but that leads very nicely into our last question or second to last question, which was maybe looking at a bit of a, uh, a future forecast. Um, be interested to see from, from your perspective what you see the future of the property market changing um, and, and what can be done from a technical perspective to, to get ahead um, if yeah. we haven't covered already. Gosh, it's a tough one because whenever you think about future proofing, I mean, you can future proof for the stuff you can predict, but the whole point of the future is it's the unknown and we don't know what will happen. Mm. So I think the single most important thing you can do is build in flexibility and resilience, and that will be the trend. It's something we've always advised, and it's been at the heart of our framework from day one, but I think now it's become more and more important, and I think it's the future. It's a building that can 
be like a leopard and you know sort of change its spots it can blend into any environment it can really camouflage itself against any economic any social any health situation so that the spaces are adaptable and flexible so should you suddenly have less office tenants could you then convert some of it to co-living or something like that or could you rent out a different part of it for a different kind of use and I think that that's what we really need to be seeing in buildings to be thinking ahead to make them very easy to adapt or change between use classes not just between spaces so that particularly for developers keeping a building for a long time and retaining it that they've got that flexibility so they're market resilient and they're more less susceptible to these shocks you get because the more globalized the world gets the more issues we're going to have like this either economic or pandemics which is a a a, a very um pertinent and um obvious point i suppose based on on, on what we're ex- all experiencing at the minute i'm also very mindful i'm getting eyeballed by my sausage dog and i've got a horrible <laughs> feeling she's gonna she's gonna kick off again in a second Don't worry. yeah dogs are meant to be relaxing in the home aren't they but mine seems to be <laughs> causing <laughs> me stress <laughs> oh god sausage dogs aren't dogs though they think they're people so you didn't get a dog no, you got a she, tiny person she's a doberman in a very small body she's <laughs> <laughs> So, Olga, just to wrap it up, thank you so much uh, thus far. So where can people find, follow, get in contact with you? Uh, You can get in touch on our website through ask.ekis.co. You can drop me a line at olga.ekis.co. Follow us on Instagram, Ekis account, or on Twitter, although we don't use that as much. Uh, Just reach out with any questions. We're always happy to have an informal chat. We're always happy to help. Um, And it's just about spreading the word about how important well-being is. And we'd love to hear it from anybody, really. Boom. A slam dunk. Thank you uh, so much for your time today. It was awesome. Episode two, a big tick. Thanks for listening to the Built for Life podcast. If you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective, please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more and most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group. And just to finish, if you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports. All the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, if you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.